In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, one can hardly read or listen to the account of our Lord's passion and the events that surround his resurrection without being drawn into it as into a well-told story or play. Such vivid description and moving progression of events as recorded by the inspired gospel writers are all filled with countless theological insights and brilliant connections to the Old Testament prophecies. All of this serves to pull us into the drama. And the deeper you go, the more there is. But of course, the events of Holy Week are more than just well-written and compelling dramas. These things really happened. As each evangelist presents the details of all that Jesus went through in his suffering and death, we hear from each of them, respectively, a slightly different perspective and recollection of what happened. Matthew and Mark don't write the exact same thing, although they are the most similar of the four. Luke and John offer many details that the others don't and are themselves very different from each other. Sometimes an attempt to nail down exactly what happened and in what order is a puzzle to figure out. This is even more true of the resurrection accounts than of the passion accounts. And perhaps you've tried. It's actually very enjoyable if you, when you do so, even if you, you haven't succeeded in figuring out for sure how it all jibes together. What scoffers dismiss as discrepancies and inconsistencies, however, which in reality there are none, we see instead as beautiful evidence that what the evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record is not just four different takes on a really good story, but faithfully recorded events that truly occurred and that were truly witnessed and experienced by real people who were excited to tell the truth about what objectively took place. Jesus died and rose again. The interested reader, excited about what good news this is, and believing in truth, will find that all four accounts are in perfect harmony. The Holy Spirit inspired these accounts. His goal in doing so was not to submit to the cross-examination of skeptics who doubt. No, it was, plainly, it was to plainly relate to us what truly happened and what it means for us sinful men so that we might believe the gospel and be saved eternally. So in his wisdom, he did not supply the church with an academic chronicle of events, cataloging what happened from the perspective of an omniscient narrator, as it is called in literature class. To be sure, God is narrating, and God is omniscient. God the Holy Spirit inspired men to write what they wrote. God, who knows all, does not inspire error or forgetfulness or personal opinions of sinners like me. No, he is the spirit of truth. 
Nonetheless, God, who inspired what we read and consider in the Bible, wrote through men not just to publish the facts, though, of course, this is most important, but he wrote through men in order also to honor the truly human experiences that he himself gave to his human authors. This is how he chose to teach us, and he honors us. For we too have our own perspectives and experiences, and our perspectives aren't always the same on, on everything. We see the world in ways that our closest friends and relatives, even our spouses and children and parents or our pastors may not quite understand. And sometimes we talk past each other, and it looks like discord, but it's not. But sometimes it is discord. If God says it is, it is. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your perspective. He knows when you see things right, and he knows when you see things wrong. He teaches you. His holy word, far from being a hedge hodgepodge of contradictory human stories and lessons, is the clearest and surest means by which he brings all of us onto the same page. And this morning I'd like to talk about how he does this for us. While it is true that God loves variety in relating the most important events in history, and while it is true that God also clearly loves variety in making all of us different from each other in many ways, yet it is also true that there are certain things that we must all have in common and do in common and understand in common and cast out from our hearts in common. We must, despite our differences, have concord even as the evangelists did, who admittedly saw things from different angles sometimes, but look, look at what they all teach and don't fail to report clearly and in common. Jesus Christ, true God and true man, in perfect obedience and love for his Father and in unquenchable thirst for our salvation, patiently endured the scorn of men and the wrath of God to take our place under his own curse against our sin. And it was important. It meant everything to everyone who believed. It means everything to you, whether you believe or not. It is the objective foundation of all that will ever matter. And it is true. Whatever perspective you have, and even if it seems at times that the holy evangelists couldn't get their stories straight, this they did get straight, and this you must have straight. Jesus Christ is risen. He who died for our sins has been raised for our salvation. In order to illustrate this, that is, the importance of getting our perspective straight on what matters most, I'd like to return to the very beginning of our story of Christ's passion. Since the resurrection which we celebrate today is truly only the final act, so to speak, and that's no time to begin. Since we heard from St. Mark today, we'll stick with what he records. These words from chapter 14 of the same gospel, 
relating what took place right before the pace picks up with Judas betraying Jesus in the Last Supper and Gethsemane and so forth. We read in Jesus' name. While the chief priests and scribes secretly sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death, Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. We see here how the scene is set for the first act. As Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold more for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, like with other key events of our Lord's life and passion, none of the four evangelists fail to record this event, or at least something very similar. As the opening scene of our Lord's passion in three of the four Gospels, it is very clearly an important occasion. And yet the evangelists do us no favors in getting the story and characters straight. Hardly an event in, all the, in the Gospels has caused more quizzical figuring and friendly debate as to how the four accounts exactly line up. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Maybe something extremely similar happened two or three times. Church tradition has long held this woman to be Mary Magdalene, though. As we'll see, it doesn't really matter who it was, but I think it was Mary Magdalene. It might as well have been. She loved Jesus. He cast out of her seven evil spirits, thus proving himself the stronger man who is able to bind the devil and plunder his kingdom. She was ever more devoted to him for rescuing her from her sin. What matters, though, more than who did it is that it was done. It was witnessed and recorded and remembered for us. And it was done for someone no less sinful than Mary Magdalene and no less grateful. And why? Why did it count for so much to Jesus? Well, he tells us. Because she did it beforehand for his burial. Did she? She did not say so. But Jesus says so. Jesus accepts her devotion in great meekness. Perhaps she could not quite give an articulate reason or exact purpose for her tremendous act of gratitude. Perhaps you have a feeling. You can't put it into words. Jesus didn't say, why did you do this? No. He tells the others why. She was overwhelmed with emotion. She just loved him and knew his worth and had to express it. So Jesus lets 
her, anoint him, he defends her when she is criticized for what looks like endless, needless extravagance, and then he tells her. Think of that. He teaches her. She learns from Jesus why she herself did for him what she did. Well, that's amazing. He reveals to her and everyone there why he was so glad to accept her loving service. She did it for my burial. And so Jesus also teaches us how we may honor him. Oh, we love him. We worship him. We count all cost as nothing in order to lavish him with praise and thanksgiving for all he has done for us. Certainly what he has done for us is of greater cost and value than anything 300 denarii can buy, right? I mean, what is that? Even if it were given to the poor, how much does that amount to? A mere $30,000 for which a common man in Jesus' day would take only at least a year to earn. She did this for his burial. And Jesus says it was worth it. With this instruction, Jesus is directing her faith and love not just to what he had already done in kindly forgiving her and loosing her from demonic possession and whatever enslaving sin was dragging her to hell. He is doing more than that. He is directing her praise and love to the cost of such power, to the price he himself would pay in order to show such great mercy and kindness and to continually shower her and the whole world with such grace. He was directing her to his death for her on the cross. And so Jesus teaches us the nature of our praise, which he accepts. He directs you to the value of everything. What is the value of your time? Jesus tells you it's not wasted praising him. What is the value of your voice? Your attention span? Your money? Or whatever other talent God has given you, Jesus tells you that when you spend it for his honor, he will remember it forever. What is the value of your daily devotion to praying before you eat or before you fall asleep? or your weekly devotion to gathering with faithful Christians to hear the gospel preached to you. Jesus tells us what the cost is. The cost is found in his beaten and bruised and lifeless body that was laid in a tomb after bearing your sin willingly and patiently unto death. That is the cost to him. And by rising from the dead to save us from death and open the way to eternal life for us, Jesus announces to all creation from hell, wrong direction, from hell to heaven and to the ends of the earth, that the cost was worth it. So that we might know no cost. Whatever you devote to Jesus, you devote in faith that by his death, he has gained for you eternal peace with God. There is no other way to honor him than by faith. 
You can give your body to be burned or sell all you have and give it to the poor, but you cannot honor him except by faith. Whatever you devote to Jesus, you devote in love for what he has done for you as your Savior. There is no other way to believe in him except by loving him. To love him is to love hearing the gospel. You love him who loved you. Whatever you devote to Jesus finds its value not in how much you must give up. It is Judas who counted what a waste the 300 denarii were, and he betrayed his Lord for third. No, whatever you devote to Jesus finds its value not in what you see as wasted, but in what he gave up in order to gain your salvation and make peace for you with God. This is what Jesus teaches us when he accepts our offerings. What this woman did was a memorial to her. It still is. And what a wonderful thing she did. What cost she counted is nothing to honor her Lord. And where and under what conditions and circumstances is this gift that she gave told as a memorial to her? That is, beside this mor besides this morning, Jesus tells us wherever the gospel is preached. And this is true. As often as the gospel is preached, this is what happens. While we don't specifically call, recall what Mary Magdalene or whatever other woman or women may have done in anointing Jesus every time we hear the gospel, yet what is more precious to God than costly spikener occurs every single time Christians gather to hear the gospel. It is faith. The gospel which we hear when it is preached works faith in us. Faith that saves us from sin. Faith that praises and loves Jesus. Faith that is unafraid of all that Jesus conquered by his dying and rising again. We don't remember Mary every time we hear the gospel preached. But Jesus does. Remember that. He accepts what we offer to him for love of what he has done for us. He accepts it for the same reason he accepted Mary's anointing. We ourselves anoint him for his burial as often as we repent of our sins to God and ask him to forgive us for Jesus' sake. We anoint his body that was buried as often as we confess that he is our Savior, who alone can take our sins away and who has. We anoint the body of Christ as often as we direct the love we have for Jesus who saved us to one another, who with us are being saved. And who is being saved? Those who hear the gospel. Oh, what a precious promise we hear from Jesus in these words. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever and whenever he gives to us what he earned for us by giving his whole life into bitter death, whenever and wherever he gives to us the life he took back again in order to give his life to us, so often our Lord is so kind to be mindful and pleased with whatever we have done for him in confessing him as our Savior. The whole life of faith 
is a life of anointing the body of Jesus for his burial. It is a confession that all our sins were carried and paid for by him who died to take them away. You need this life of faith. You need it. You need the devotion of Mary. But dear Christians, what you need more than to know the value of your own devotion is to know the power of Christ's devotion. Like Mary, so highly honored for her devotion, even years earlier as she sat at her Savior's feet while Martha busied and served in the kitchen. And yet she was called back to the one thing needful, the Word of God. So also, if the devil will attempt one final trick to leave any of you in sadness today, to save his third feet, or in the worst to be ambulant to the great victory we celebrate and unwilling to return, the devil will convince you to measure the value of your faith by how much you are able to give. What emotion or devotion or sacrifice can you muster up? That's what the devil whispers. Are you a Christian? The devil will tell you how to find out. What do you give? Mode, attendance, church? What money in the offering plate? What can you give to rest your conscience on so that you can say, I have anointed the body of the Lord? That's the devil is. She received high for no her to him. She found something in her days accepted. So early this morning, so many years ago, she and the other women hastened to the tomb to do the very thing that Mary had already done. They desired to praise him and serve him as he had once commended Mary for doing. But how would they? Who even would roll the stone away? How could they get to it? They didn't think, they just felt. The only power they had in their faith so far was the power of their own devotion. But such confidence in one's own devotion will always only disappoint as stone after unmovable stone separates you from Jesus. You who believe in Christ, who love him and desire to praise him and offer some token of thanks for all he has done for you. Although Jesus in his meekness will accept your sacrifices to him, yet he accepts them where they are offered in faith. More than anything, you need faith. The sacrifice of a broken heart that seeks comfort only in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is more concerned about your faith than he is with whatever he might get from you. He is more concerned with what you might receive from him. He who does not die again but lives forever desires to anoint you for your burial. He desires to bind your life to his, your death and burial to his own, and his own resurrection to you forever. In tears, Mary regretted that she could not serve Jesus again. In regret and confusion, you too might seek to work up the right emotion or state of mind or produce the right work to prove to yourself that you are indeed a Christian, but it will prove nothing. 
As the angel said, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is not here. He is not in your devotion, your gifts, your commitment. He is in his own. So go to where Jesus meets his disciples in Galilee. Where he commands them to preach peace to you in his name. Leave behind your tears. Even if you failed to follow him to judgment and meditate on his suffering this holy week. And you are here only to hear the last act of the greatest story ever told. It is too late to weep. But even you right now are invited to rejoice. Do not be afraid. He who died even for you is risen again. So don't look for drama. Don't look to fulfill the best story ever told. It is finished. And you are already in this story because Jesus died for you. He rose for you. And he preaches the gospel to you who are here. The stone was not removed for the faithful women to serve Jesus once again. It was removed to tell them where Jesus had gone to serve them. So go where Jesus is. Not for you to anoint his dead body, but for you to listen to him who gives you victory over the devil, forgiveness of all your sins and eternal life. He teaches you plainly what is objectively true. And so we find where we hear it, where we gather with each other to feast on Christ's great mercy together, we find also the fulfillment of a peculiar promise. And it is a promise. We find the poor are indeed always among us. They gather here to repent of their sins and beg for morsels of God's kindness. And our Savior prepares, our Savior prepares a feast. So go to where Jesus gives wealth to the poor and life to the dead. We who confess our sins and hear the gospel every Sunday desire more than to serve the poor. Our greatest joy is to see Jesus make you rich. Do good to those who hear the gospel, for you need it too. Do good by hearing the gospel with them. The greatest good you can do for us fellow poor sinners is to praise Jesus with us by anointing his buried body and confessing that he died for us and by embracing the anointing of our own holy baptism, confessing that he is risen. And so we will too, who are buried with him into death, that he has now destroyed forever. For he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen. Mm -hmm.